Welcome back to PNC C-Speak, the language of the executives, for part two of our conversation with Josiah Cox, who's president of Central States Water and also apparently a regional finalist for the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. And I just learned moments ago, a member of the Titan 100, which is a brand new award, but man, that has quite the sound to it. <laughs> He's a member of the Titan 100. You know, I get more heck about being called a Titan than just about anything else. <laughs> not 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 a Jayhawk. Not no. Okay. So so because of those those honors, and they don't they aren't just given to anyone. Clearly, um, you've got to be someone who could give advice to those who maybe they are an engineer who just graduated and and they are working wherever they're working and they have dreams of being an entrepreneur. What I know you have a lot of advice to give to people who might be in that situation. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I think has been sustaining for me across my career is grit. It's the willingness to both do hard things. I mean, you know, one of the reasons why we've been successful as a company is we're picking a market niche that's very difficult. You know, every individual deal has its own nuances. They're not the same. You know, the public part of this is individual for every single community. You know, we talk about we own 800 systems. Every system is a community, and every community has people, and those people care about their system and their community, not about the other 790 that you own, right? So that's very difficult on an individual basis, but that's why we've been successful because we've hit that part of the market that no one else wants, right? And then, you know, that grid also goes into, you know, how you deal with raising money and believing in your business. You know, for me, I knew that this problem needed addressed, that this investment needed to happen, right? But there's a ton of pushback. You have an entrenched interest both in maintaining the status quo, not admitting that the, that the state of infrastructure, infrastructure is as bad as it is, Right, and convincing investors that there is long-term money to be made. I mean, you know, when I was raising money to this company, I got told no ninety times. Right, and you know, I did the Shark Tank thing where you would go through, pitch your business. Everyone's trying to tear it apart to the pieces, and it's sometimes it can be hard going. You think, man, am I making a mistake? Do I really know this business? Do I understand what needs to be done? Do I understand how the economic pieces come together? And you know, tr- keep. You know, continuing to press forward and letting all those, you know, setbacks actually refine your business and refine you as a person, that's been really integral for me personally. And did all those no's lead you to rewrite or to rethink at all? Uh, a lot of those no's, at least retool, refine is what I'd say all those no's did is, you know, come through like, okay, they told me no for this reason. How do I overcome that objection? You know, or they told me no, you know, because of this experience. How do I explain that I will be able to make that happen? You know, all those kind of questions were very refining. In fact, probably key to our success because it took so long for me to get through all those that, man, you want to talk about a business I know backward and forward. I know this thing all the way in soup to nuts. Well, it seems to me, Josiah, that, you know, these communities don't have a whole lot of choice if their waste and water systems are failing. Uh, They have to do something. So, you mentioned something. These are systems that nobody else wants. Well, there has to be some competitors to what you do, I would think. Very few. There are very few competitors in the entire country. And we've been the fastest growing water and wastewater utility on a percentage basis for the last four years running. We'll, um, uh, and on a pure customer basis, we've been the top two for the last four years as well in terms of total connections, homes that we're, we're buying on an individual year basis. They really don't have any cross-state um, uh, competitors. There are a couple of regional competitors like in Texas or other states that are buying up small systems. 
but really, especially the failed nature of the systems we're buying, I mean, the technical expertise to turn those things around, it's, it's a unique skill set. And we're willing to answer the call. I mean, I got a great, you know, I get called by the Texas Public Utilities Commission saying we have a failed system that's polluting the Guadalupe River in the Hill Country, which serves as drinking water source for 2 million people downstream. We're the company that picks up, jumps on a plane, rents a car, drives the middle of Hill Country. I'm talking to, you know, some homeowner association president who's in three, three types of camo. And I get the trick question when I walk through the door, do you want an iced tea or a Lone Star beer? <laughs> Right, and I'm like, I know the answer to this question. Right? What is the answer? Lone Star every time, okay. <laughs> and but then being willing to jump right in those situations mm. and turn them around, right? It's been really key for us because it shows what a trusted partner we are, and we're meeting the communities where they're at. I, I feel like grit is a new word in our lexicon, a business lexicon, right? Um, and also even in parenting, how to raise a child who's resilient, how to raise a child with grit. It's a new thing. When it comes to, we talked, Michael brought up the culture of your of your company. You have grit. You're the owner. You're the creator. You're the entrepreneur. How do you see that? And how do you grow that? Or do you grow that in your employees? Yeah, it's funny. With employees, it's almost like I do with my kids. You literally put them in very difficult situations, mm. right? You put them as a front face when they feel inexperienced, right? You make them do the public meeting when they've never done one. You show them how to do it, right? But you pile on responsibility and you see the people they're willing to push through. And that really has been key for us is, you know, taking young guys, giving them a ton of responsibility, like, like I said earlier about the self-governing culture, and then letting them sink or swim. And when they fail, instead of making this huge catastrophic event, talking through the failure, refining the process, giving the opportunity to do it again, and telling them they're going to have to do it again. So you're building that into the culture. But we're also picking people, I believe, on an individual basis who we think already have those characteristics as they're walking in the door. So what's interesting is you operate in a, a regulated industry, so you have the public uh, good aspect, but you also have the private. It seems to me these systems are all private. Uh, their systems are owned by uh, the people that use them, and they have the responsibility to fix them. Is that correct assessment? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. It's a varied amount of, of types of owners. Sometimes it's an individual owner. Uh, sometimes it's a property owners association board, you know, who are obviously elected by the property owners themselves. Sometimes it's a political subdivision, a water or wastewater district, right? And in each of those circumstances, they have a different relationship to the community they serve, right? And we have to figure out that relationship and kind of navigate that to explain who we are and why we're a great fit. And we wanted to, before we let you go, um, talk about the new technology uh, that is in play, if it is, uh, with central states and the industry in general, and, and even new pollutants. I hate to bring that up, but that, that's an issue. So first of all, what new technologies? Have you developed some? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, we have. We pioneered a couple technologies as a company, right? And really, what we're focused on is uh, costs for our customers. So how can we reuse existing structures? What are ways we can treat water and wastewater effectively, but do it at the, the cheapest per gallon cost we can? So we're one of the first guys to use moving bed bioreactors, which is a really fancy way of having basically plastic spaghetti noodles floating around in a, a concrete basin that creates enough habitat for microorganisms to efficiently break down water and wastewater waste. 
So that's been an interesting technology. We've micronized that. So we've taken it from giant concrete tanks to the back of wastewater plants all the way down to small cages in like sand filtration plants. We've got like around Lake of the Ozarks and Table Rock Lake, that kind of thing. So that's been a real game changer for us and be able to meet modern EPA limits and do it on a cost-effective basis. I think the other technology you're seeing coming down the, the pipe right now is new disinfection technologies. So, you know, ozone on water, you know, there's you've, if you've read during the um, – uh, the whole COVID crisis, they started doing wastewater testing mm-hmm. for the presence of COVID. We think that there's a ton of both, you know, from the disease perspective, but also getting to understand your community. I mean, a health perspective, you know, wastewater monitoring has got huge implications for understanding who the people are in the, in the community. So that's an interesting technology thing. It's been really recent. Um, you know, the pollutant you know, thing that you brought up is a whole different deal. So I think if you've read about PFAS or, you know, um, it's microplastics. So what we've realized is flame retardants, you know, ammunitions, you know, Teflon, that kind of stuff, the water repellent jackets you wear, all that. That's really been a modern, you know, modern chemistry miracle. But the the materials to make all those products are microplastics. These microplastics, it turns out they're very hard to capture. They're ubiquitous. They can pass in the human bloodstream. So it means you drink microplastics and it ends up in your body and it bioaccumulates. So they're realizing this has migrated into water systems, especially around industrial areas or army bases, military bases across the country. And really, there's been a ton of focus from the EPA, like how many of these microplastics does it take before it's really harmful to the human body? And then the treatment of these microplastics is extremely expensive. You're having to do giant membrane filtration plants or electrolysis to suspend this stuff. And then what do you do with those microplastics once they've been treated? I mean, they're not something you put in a landfill because it reenters into the whole, you know, circular, you know, you know, nature of water. So that's a big, you know, issue that's facing the water and wastewater industry right now. And there are no easy answers currently. So Josiah, if I'm a listener and I live in a community with a failing water plant or a wastewater treatment plant, it seems like central states is a dream come true. So what tell me there has to be a downside. What what would be a downside of that assessment? Yeah, I think the downside is really that it costs money. Yeah, I, I kind of joked earlier we love what we do, we don't run on love. In the end, there are rate impacts for the investment we make, right? And, you know, we say all the time, oftentimes we buy communities that haven't had a rate change on the on the drinking water side for 30 years. They're paying $11 for water. Now, that water's been intermittent. That water's been potentially dangerous, you know, so they've been paying for service they've not really received. But when you do reinvestment and bring these things back into compliance where they, they're, you're delivering safe and reliable service, there's a cost to that. And I think that's one thing that communities really, they struggle with is realizing that everyone's going to have to pay more for service that's now worth more. But that's a hard sell sometimes. But every community, can you say that every community you've gone into with central states, that life has improved, clearly, development has has come about? Yeah, absolutely. And what's one of the big, especially over years now, having done this, you know, see the impact on, you know, uh, house house prices, the sea impact on development, the communities grow. In fact, they've grown at a faster pace than we ever thought. And we've heard, you know, multiple times these rate impacts are going to, you know, cause people to move out. They're not going to be able to stay. And it's just been the opposite. We've seen we've seen actually new houses get built, revitalize the community. Any any investment in basic infrastructure really kind of turns the whole place around. So it's a fact that I've always taken with me is that 
you hear that St. Louis has the best tasting water in the country. <laughs> I don't know what that means because I haven't been to the other places, but what does that mean to you? I mean, St. Louis does have some of the best water in the country. I mean, that's why you got a ton of bottling plants. You get Anheuser Busch here, and really, there you know there are two reasons for that. You know, the the water treatment plant that the city of St. Louis runs was built, I think, in the 1900s, early 1900s. The Chain of Rocks plant. It's awesome, and it's it's awesome because it's over engineered because that's how they used to do it, right? So, and it was built for a much bigger population at the time. So, you're just getting multiple layers of treatment that really cause the quality to be really high. And the other thing we're lucky for here in the state of Missouri, we're the cave state. I don't know if people know that. Mm-hmm. So that means we have calcium bicarbonate. You know, um, uh, subsurface geology. So what that really means is water one trickulates down through the ground into aquifers and does it at a pretty fast pace, and it gets treated by running through this calcium bicarbonate. So our underground drinking water is particularly clean for the entire country. I have been to other places, and it it tastes different in other places. That's exactly right. There's some bad water in some other communities, so it definitely tastes good in St. Louis. I've drank bad water all over the country. (laughs) (laughs) We had a story recently on KMOX about the the water wells, the fresh water wells in the city of St. Charles, which for a lot of us kind of came out of nowhere. Okay, I did fresh water wells and the role that Amron was playing. You watch those things, I'm sure. Absolutely do. What's your thought about that? I mean, you know, it's interesting. That's a great example of one, a pollutant that we didn't know, you know, 30 years ago was necessarily an issue, right? And then the migration of that as infrastructure degrades, you start to get a release of material into the environment. And then that release takes time to go down through the, the subsurface and get into the aquifer, right? So all those things build up, right, over time. You've got this this pollutant that it, you do, you weren't regulating for originally, you have that your infrastructure starting to fail, and then it takes time to migrate and really get into the drinking water system, right? And I think that's just what happened there, unfortunately. And to clarify, the mayor of St. Charles says the chemical that's being found in these freshwater wells is something that only Ameren, Missouri, uh, is the only industry in the region using it. So that is why there's a question over this chemical contamination of these water wells and the back and forth between the city of St. Charles um, and Ameren. Ameren is saying that they can't uh, pursue a solution at all until the EPA confirms the source of the contamination. You're smiling in a very knowing way. I don't know if it's a knowing way. I mean, you know, we see this, you know, I don't know, I don't know the particulars of that, you know, the individual case. I would say what we have seen other places is, you know, you're right next to an oil refinery or you're right next to a plastics manufacturer. And in those scenarios, you know, you've got an industrial plume that's very clearly coming from this, you know, industrial user. And you got to go through a lot of hoops to get the industrial user to have to, you know, remediate that, those problems that they're obviously the originator for. And it just takes a while. And I understand they're a big company and, you know, they're not going to just give away money. So we, we just experienced that. I'm not saying that about Ameren, but I've seen that other places. So you bring up a good question when, you know, the quest for energy independence for our country has involved a lot of fracking, particularly in some of the non-Missouri states you're involved with. Where does that impact what you do? Yeah, very little. I mean, so we do we do much work in Texas where there's a ton of fracking going on. It's a really well-regulated industry. I mean, what we've seen is that, you know, the spent water material they're using for fracking, because, you know, in case you don't realize, they're taking water and sand, basically, and putting it high pressure in these old wells to force more hydrocarbons out, right? They've done a good job of regulating, one, how they're treating that spent water, and they're re-injecting it in really deep water situations, so below the aquifers that people use. 
use. So we've seen no interplay in any of the systems we've done in Texas between frack water and drinking water. I'm going to ask you for two numbers now, okay? How many employees do you have? I think today we're 64, and we have, I think, over 1,000 direct contractors who work for us across our 11-state footprint. How many children do you have? <laughs> I have four, which is eight million. <laughs> and and are are they old enough to know what what dad does, and what are their thoughts about what dad does? Yeah, absolutely. In, in fact, I'll tell you a funny story. My third son, when he was in kindergarten, they have the you know, hey, your parent, what's your parent do for a living day? So my kid gets up and says, my dad does poop for a living, <laughs> and all the boys in this in the class start laughing and the teacher tells him it's inappropriate, so I get a call from the school. Hey, we're sorry. Your son said that you do poop for a living. That's what I do. Oh, that's great. Wonderful. Good for you. Good talk. You know, and immediately got off. So my kids are very aware of what we do, what I do. Probably the only people in the St. Louis metro area who can't wait to do poop when they grow up (laughs) for a living. But uh, yeah, I've taken the plants with me. I've taken them to public meetings with me. So they've been really involved and got to kind of see firsthand and the turnaround we've been able to do. So that's been fun having a family and getting them involved somewhat. My husband often has always said he wanted to have a business that he could leave for his children, not that they want to be landscapers. That's what he does. Is that a, a desire of yours? That is not going to happen. We're, <laughs> we're, uh, they got to make their own way in the world. You know, <laughs> It's that grit thing we talked about earlier. I want them to face adversity and make their own way. And, you know, I think the best way to do that is somewhere else. <laughs> Well, Michael Scully, you brought another good one in today, as you you, always do. That is Michael Scully, regional president of PNC, and Josiah Cox, president of Central States Water Resources. It's been a pleasure to have you and so great to know more about what you do and and how you got here. Thank you, Carol. It's been a real pleasure being here. To listen to any past C-Speak episodes you might have missed, visit kmox.com slash PNC C-Speak. PNC C-Speak, the language of executives.